God wants us to know that the powers, the rulers, the world forces, all of those fallen imps that are waging war in the heavenly places have been defeated, just like some of the angels have been committed to pits of darkness. And just as God judged some angels, though it appears these false teachers are getting away with it, God is going to judge them as well. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our look at the various judgments the book of Revelation tells us will take place during a future time known as the Tribulation. Having looked at the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and six of the seven bowl judgments, Today, we're taking a little detour as Dr. Brogy gives insight into what the culture will be like at the time of these judgments. Our passage from 2 Peter tells of a time marked by false prophets when many will give in to sensuality. Then in chapter 2, Peter goes back to the book of Genesis and looks at the time of Noah and of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins that were prevalent then and which led to destruction. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, we'll learn about a terrible sin that took place when a number of fallen angels had relations with women on earth. This is the book of beginnings, and it gives us a lot of insight into why things are the way they are. Look at Genesis 6.1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, by the way, every time you see the designation, the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. And if you were reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is what most Jews read in Christ's day and what is repeatedly quoted in the New Testament when they reference the Old Testament, Sons of God is always translated angeloi, angels, because that's what is in view. And that becomes obvious as you read the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Job, God reminds Job that no man can instruct an all-knowing God as seen in the question he asked him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you, Job? And then he asked when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's what we call a Hebrew parallelism. If you read Proverbs, like many of you do, once a day, there's parallelisms all the way through Proverbs where this phrase equals this phrase. And that's how it's structured here. The morning stars equals the angels, that is, the sons of God. And some English translations follow the Septuagint interpretively, and so they don't literally translate it, the sons of God, but one says, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. His point is, men were not around when God created the world, but the angels were, and they sang. And if you remember in Job 1 and Job 2, the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, the Angeloi, the angels, came into the presence of God with Satan. And the term is used of both holy angels and fallen angels. And they said, in essence, God, Job follows you because you've blessed him. You've bought his love. Take it away, and it will become obvious that he doesn't really love you. 
And so God uh, allows certain things within certain parameters to be done to Job to prove that he is indeed a righteous man. But the point is, is that the sons of God there is a reference to angels. Now, I should say parenthetically, for the first 1,500 years of church history, there was not a single interpretation on the book of Genesis that took the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men is anything different than angels cohabitating with women. But I need to tell you, because it's become popular in our day, some say that what is taking place here in Genesis 6 is that the godly line of Seth is intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. But that's impossible for at least four reasons. Let me give them to you. The text does not say the sons of men saw the daughters of men were beautiful. No, rather, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took them as wives. Clearly, verse 2, the contrast is not made between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, but between angels, the sons of God, and the daughters of men. And if this were the sin of a mixed marriage, as some teach today, then it's rather strange as taught that only the sons of Seth and not the daughters of Seth and only the daughters of Cain and not the sons of Cain were involved. And by the way, I won't be surprised if when I get to heaven someday to find out that Satan had a plan in all of this and that he was trying to corrupt the human race in order that the Messiah could not be truly human and therefore come into the world. But to interpret this, as intermarriage between believers and unbelievers is what we call eisegesis. It's reading into the text. So it must refer to angels because, again, the term sons of God, number two, is never, ever, ever used anywhere in every passage of the Old Testament but for angels. And what's interesting is these people are not consistent because while they say here it's the unbelieving man of Cain's lineage or intermarrying, yet they acknowledge sons of God refers to angels and all the other texts. So one, they're not consistent. Third, angels cohabitating with women clearly must be in view because one cannot ignore the offspring. Look at the offspring here in verse 4, the Nephilim. Now, the King James interprets the word Nephilim, but correctly so. They say the giants. Because the Nephilim, it's a Hebrew word that means giants. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them and they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now angels, the Bible said, are greater in strength and might than people. Now sometimes people will say, well, wait a minute, angels can't cohabitate with Men, because Jesus said, in heaven we're like the angels where we neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's not what you can conclude from Jesus' statement. In heaven you are like the angels in that you don't procreate. You don't have children any more than angels today don't cohabitate with other angels and produce little baby angels known as cherubs. Now, they're all over the Hallmark cards, but they're not anywhere in the Word of God. That's a man-made myth. Angels don't have angel babies. 
But that does not mean that an angel, when they take on human form, could not literally, actually, physically cohabitate with a woman. The Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, interestingly renders the verse, in those days and even afterwards, when the evil beings from the spirit world were sexually involved with human women, their children became giants of whom so many legends are told. Now, we do know that when an angel takes on humanity that they are able to assimilate food and drink. Genesis 18 tells us that when the angels have a fellowship meal with Abraham. We also know from Genesis chapter 19 that the men of Sodom wanted to have relations with the two angels that came. And by the way, in every single appearance of an angel in the Bible, they are always male. I'm not saying that there couldn't be a female angel but there's no record of a female angel anywhere in the Word of God. In every instance, when an angel appears, they are men. And these men of Sodom, as did Lot himself, they recognized the possibility to be able to have a relationship with these two angelic men. Lot was so foolish that recognizing the possibility that he offered his two virgin daughters instead because he recognized it was a reality that could happen. Now, angels are greater in might and strength than men. And so if an angel was able to cohabitate with a woman, you would expect a freak race, and that's what happened. Now, let me give you a fourth reason for seeing that these are angels cohabitating with women, and it's the best reason. God actually gives us divine commentary on this. And the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. You've got your finger in 2 Peter. Turn back a few pages to 1 Peter and go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter instructs us that between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he went on a preaching mission to some fallen angels who were confined and would not have known of his victory over the cross. The rest of the angelic world, the book of Colossians tells us, were mocked. He made a display over them and all of their power through the victory of his cross. But there was a group of angels who did not witness what happened there at Golgotha and then on Sunday morning. We're told in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's he, for us, the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Please note, it doesn't say made alive in the flesh. Now, there are some liberal theologians, one pastor in Hilton Head, who says that Jesus didn't literally physically rise from the dead. He spiritually was risen from the dead, and so he's being raised in our hearts today. That's heresy. Jesus physically, literally, actually came out of the tomb. And the latter portion of this chapter will affirm that, but that's not what's in view in here. Jesus was dead in the flesh, but in his spirit, between the time he was laid in that cold, clammy tomb and on Sunday morning when he physically, literally came out of the grave in a glorified, resurrected body, in his spirit, he went on a preaching mission. Now, what that looked like, I don't know. Certainly, when Samuel, before his bodily resurrection has happened, he was visible and he came out of the grave in a spirit body when he appeared before the witch of Endor, Endor and Saul. 
Moses and Elijah, and their spirit bodies were visibly pictured there on the Mount of the Transfiguration. But their bodily resurrection, their resurrection body has not yet happened. However it happened, in his spirit, it says, in which, in his spirit before he was raised, in which also he went and he made proclamation to the spirits, a term used for angels, now in prison, same group we're talking about, who once were disobedient, when? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, again, who does this refer to in verse 20, this who? It goes back to the spirit beings, that's the nearest antecedent, who are now in prison, and they were engaged during the time of Noah. Now, I don't know about you, but that settles it for me. I'm letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So think your way through this. Genesis 6, Moses is recording for us something that Peter and Jude give us divine commentary on that the sons of God, the angels, left their proper abode by cohabitating with the daughters of men. Now, angels, of course, when they take on our humanity, the Bible tells us that they look like real human beings. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says you can entertain an angel without even knowing it. And so when these fallen angels left their proper abode, they did something that was so wicked that right now, this morning, as I speak, They are in prison, they are committed to pits, they are in chains uh, in pits of darkness. So, follow what Peter is saying. After Jesus was laid in the tomb, before he was raised on Sunday, in his spirit, he went on a preaching mission. Now, in the old confessions of faith, it says Christ died for our sins, he was buried. He descended into hell, and it's a specific compartment of hell, Tartarus. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Now, in some of the newer confessions, they've removed that phrase, he descended into hell, because Roman Catholics began to teach that Jesus descended into hell to pay for sin, and that's wrong. On the cross, he paid for our sin. On the cross, he shouted to Telestai, it is finished. But nonetheless, the Bible teaches, as the ancient confessions reflect, that between Jesus's being laid in the tomb and being raised from the dead, he went on a preaching mission, and he preached to a category of angels that did not know of his victory. And if you read all of 1 Peter 3, which we won't, the point is, is that Christ is victorious in heaven above. He's victorious in the spiritual realm in which angels are waging war, and he's victorious even in the deepest caverns of this place called Tartarus. And so follow the logic here. You say, well, I don't understand all of this and what the point is. Don't miss the point. Look at 2 Peter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Why is Peter raising this point? Because it appears, and it especially appears in our day, that the devil is winning. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And God wants us to know that the powers, the rulers, the world forces, all of those fallen imps that are waging war in the heavenly places have been defeated, just like some of the angels have been committed to pits of darkness. And just as God judged some angels, though it appears these false teachers are getting away with it, God is going to judge them as well. So to 
confirm this even further, he gives us a second illustration. First, God showed his judgment when he punished angels. Secondly, God showed his judgment when he punished the ancient world. Beginning now in verse 5, the apostle Peter gives us a second illustration that God will judge these false prophets. And if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This then is the point. Neither then will God spare these false prophets, these false teachers, just like he did not spare the ancient world in Noah's day. Now, the Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You don't learn that in the Old Testament. You would know that by reading a single verse in the Old Testament. But God gives us divine insight, new revelation about Noah that we don't know, that for 120 years while he was building that ark and God was contending with men, Noah was preaching the gospel. Now listen, if crowds and responses and decisions were a mark of how good a preacher Noah was and his faithfulness, then he failed miserably. Because the Bible says in the end, on the day the flood came, only eight were saved. Now, that's not to say others couldn't have been saved during that 120 years. We know of at least one man, the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his father did. Remember him, Methuselah? He died the year of the flood, and he was saved during that time. And maybe there are others, but on the day the judgment came, out of the multitudes who were on the planet... There are only eight people who are right with God. We're told in Genesis 6 and verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. Furthermore, we're told, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. It was a day of gross immorality, of murder, of cruelty, of crime, of lust, and injustice. And the human race had gone foul, and the fullest expression of the noatic days will be seen after the rapture of the church, when all the vestiges of good, all of the light in this world, all of the salt that preserves righteousness is gone, hell will have a holiday, and you'll see the fullest expression, but I'm telling you, it's growing in our day. We are seeing Romans 1 lived out. Now, if you remember from the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that the whole world was enjoying life until the very day that Noah entered the ark. They thought nothing was going to happen. And I'm sure all the experts and I'm sure all the apostates of their day said, oh, Noah, he's an old fuddy-duddy. Don't listen to him. Remember, it had never rained before the great flood. The Bible says a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the surface of the earth. God had a giant sprinkler system across the planet. But Noah said God was going to flood the world. And Jesus tells us right up until the very day, people ignored him. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, Luke 17, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. No one believed him. People thought nothing was going to happen, and then one day God put Noah in the ark, and the Bible says God shut the door, and then the Bible says God sealed him in. 
Now, the ark, we learn in 1 Peter, is a type. It's an illustration. It's a picture of Christ. There's one ark, one God, three levels, three in one, one door, because there's only one way to come into a relationship with the living God. And after Noah and his family was safely in the ark, God shut the door and God sailed him in. And by the way, God does that for us. When we're saved, God puts us in the ark of safety and he seals us for the day of redemption. But listen, with every decade that is passing, things seem to be getting worse. I hope every teenager is listening carefully to me this morning because your generation is so different from what it was even 50 and 60 years ago. Oh, there were problems in that day. But the young lady who gave up her virginity before marriage was the exception rather than the norm. Men who used drugs and alcohol were the exception rather than the norm. Do you know that they have porn parties at Clemson University and USC, Columbia? They gather for porn parties and then they act them out. It is a wicked day in which we are living. Jesus said, because of lawlessness, Sin has increased, and most people's love will grow cold. And now this immorality and this lawlessness is not just happening with the young, it is happening with the old. And we're being anesthetized by the spirit of our day, and people reasoning, well, everyone's doing it, it must be right. And that's what they thought during this pre-flood time. And then the waters came and the flood came. Now, if that were not enough, God gives us a third example to show that his judgment is not asleep. Not only did he punish angels, not only did he punish the ancient world, third, God showed his judgment when he punished Lot's world. When he punished Lot's world. He gives us a third reminder of the coming judgment. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. God says that when he burned Sodom and Gomorrah into oblivion, that it is an example of his future judgment. Hold your finger here and turn to the prophet Ezekiel. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center. So find Psalms. Most of you can just split the Bible in half here in Psalms. Then scan to the right, and you'll come to Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Then you will come to the book of Ezekiel. You should bring a Bible. You'll get a lot more. This is God's word I'm preaching, not my opinion. You'll learn if you have a copy of the scriptures in your hand. Now, there's a chilling parallel, and I want you to see it here in the prophet Ezekiel between the last day's world and what we even call America and the the day in which Ezekiel lived as he describes Sodom. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48, God says this, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So God outlines for us the sin of Sodom, and the very first sin at the top of his list is arrogance. Some of your translations say pride. 
Some of your translations say majesty. That's not a bad rendering of the Hebrew. It's the kind of, we're number one. We're it. We're the big cheese. And many of the people that were living in Ezekiel's day had not become sexual perverts, but they were eaten up with pride. And the Bible says there are six things that God hates, yea, even seven, and at the top of his list is the sin of pride. God, the Bible says, is opposed to the proud. And there are some people listening to me today who will not get saved because you're proud. You don't think you need a savior. There are people who come here week after week, month after month, who had never walked down the aisle of this church and humbled themselves to join a local fellowship. You know why? Because of pride. In addition to pride, there's the sin of gluttony. The NES renders it abundant food. Literally, the Hebrew says, is in the King James, fullness of bread. That's God's way of just saying they were thinking more about the things of the flesh than they were about the things of the spirit. Their God had become their belly, as Paul writes in the book of Philippians. But in addition to careless ease, they were idle. The Living Bible renders it this way. They were guilty of pride, too much food, and laziness. They were full of careless ease. God never wants anyone to be idle. People say, well, I'm retired. I've earned the right to be idle. No, you have not. You've earned the right to serve God more with your free time because God knows that idleness is sin. In addition, we learn that they were selfish and that, notice, they did not help the poor and needy. God talks about us helping the poor and needy, not to people who won't work, but people who can't work. People sometimes who have lost their job. Proverbs reminds us that he who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord. And we are to especially help, the Bible says, those who are in the household of faith. And then it was all capped off, notice with verse 50, abominations. They were haughty and committed abominations before me. Now you can read about those abominations in chapter 19. And if you want to hear a one hour and 15 minute sermon, not for the faint of heart, then go to either YouTube and type in Carl Brogy, is it okay to be gay? Or go to searchthescriptures.org and I go through every single passage in the word of God that addresses this subject. And I deal with all the misuses and the twisting of scripture that so-called Christians are espousing in our day. Let me just give you one text, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That's not someone with effeminate mannerisms, but the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't say, well, you know, I'm I'm born a female, but I need to become a male. I'm born a male, I need to become a female. I was born gay. You weren't born gay. If you were born gay, God could not hold you morally culpable for this sin. But there's good news. God can save anyone. And such were some of you. And we have people in this fellowship on our campuses that have represented every single one of these sins in the list. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And I want to tell you nothing, absolutely nothing will destroy a nation quicker and faster than the sin of sodomy. We are seeing it all around us as the culture embraces behavior that the Bible terms wicked. And as these sins are promoted, it is simply affirmation that the end of civilization is that much closer. Our study today is entitled, The God of Judgment and Grace. And when we conclude tomorrow, we'll turn our attention to that grace of God who wishes none to perish, but all to come to repentance. To listen again to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV45. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. For more information, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The God of Judgment and Grace. Join us then as we search the scriptures.